If you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Ephesians. Our habit is normally to work through books of the Bible verse by verse, and certainly to do what we call expository preaching. This next series is going to be just a little bit different, be largely expository, but we're not going to work through a book of the Bible. We're going to spend the summer starting this new series called Enjoying Jesus Through Habits of Grace. I pray that it will be a a blessing to you and a blessing to our church and ultimately, and most importantly, honoring to our Lord Jesus as we think through enjoying Christ and habits of grace. So today we're going to primarily be in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We'll also be in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, but we're going to be bouncing around a good bit. So write down the scripture references, go read those passages as we think through enjoying Jesus through habits of grace. I know I told you Ephesians, but I'm actually going to begin in the book of Job. So if you want to turn there, you can, but keep your finger in Ephesians and Philippians for we'll spend most of our time there. In Job chapter 22, verse 24 through 26, He says this, If you lay gold in the dust, and gold of a fur among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Now a bit of context here with this passage. This is Eliphaz speaking to Job. I want to get into this a little bit further, but for right now, I want you to understand that the context of this passage, later on, God, it will say, will burn with anger towards Eliphaz for saying these words to Job. But God is burning with anger towards Eliphaz for saying these words to Job, not because the words are untrue, but because Eliphaz doesn't understand the suffering and what's going on in Job's life. And so Job, or Eliphaz, if you will, is inappropriately saying these words to Job. That doesn't make what Eliphaz is saying as untrue. Matter of fact, these words are very true. And we see this in many other places of Scripture. This passage is still true. If you lay your gold in the dust, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. And here's the point. Only then you will delight yourself in the Almighty. Only then will you delight yourself in the Lord. Only then, for our terminology today, will you enjoy Christ. So let me ask you this question. What is it like to delight in God? What is it like to delight in God? Meaning, like, what is the actual experience? Being satisfied in God, finding pleasure in God. What does it actually look like to delight in God? Many of us know how to enjoy food, sports ball, our careers, money, etc., etc. But what does that mean when when it comes to God? delighting, enjoying, being satisfied. How do I do that 
with God. And I'm afraid that for many of us, it simply doesn't compute. We can enjoy pizza. We, we know how to enjoy sports or the arts. But how do I enjoy God? What is that actual experience? To quote Piper, John Piper, says this, If God is your gold, then God will be your gladness. Matthew 6.21, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. To quote Piper again, he says, If He is your treasure, speaking of Jesus if, and the Father and the Spirit, if, if He is your treasure, then He will be your pleasure. Now as we talk about delighting in God, I want to be clear that we're not talking about the gifts of God. We're not talking about delighting in the gifts of God. We're talking about the person of God. Delighting in the person of God. And what you need to understand is right now I'm setting the framework for all of our conversation around these passages over these next number of weeks. We're not talking about the gifts of God. We're talking about the actual person of God. And this is the great issue in the book of Job. Did Job love God more than God's gifts? His joy, the question is, was Job's joy in stuff more than God himself? But what you see in the book of Job, because we're not going to spend much time in the book of Job other than really right here, what you find in the book of Job is that all of his stuff was taken away. That was Satan's point. Satan was, Satan was saying, listen, you've blessed Job so much, that's why he loves you, God. If you take it away, he will not worship you, because he doesn't love you ultimately, God, he loves your stuff. But as you read in Job 1, 20-21, it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. <clears throat> what do you understand here? Listen, Job's stuff is gone. But, but I don't know that this actually sinks in. Let, let me say it a different way. Job's four children are dead. They're dead. They have been taken away. They're dead. He is dead. She is dead. They're all dead. And Job says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so delighting, if we're going to talk about enjoying Christ, if we're talking about delighting in God, it's not most fundamentally about enjoying His stuff. Listen, you know, you can tell, here's a kind of a, a little bit of a test, if you will, you can tell you're delighting when you're delighting in the things of God instead of God Himself when God takes that stuff away, right? That's kind of the point of Job. For example, when God allows a little more of your child's depraved heart to shine through, God removes a little bit of that restraining grace in that child's life, and out comes depravity, God's taking some of his stuff away for a few moments, and you, what comes out? Blessed be the name of the Lord for 
the depravity of my child right now and he is showing me his anger or his discontentment? Am I worshiping God in that moment? Or am I going, how can I get my child to just change? How can I get him to stop this? And anger comes out of us. It exposes that we in that moment are delighting more in the things of God than God himself. Or how about when God ordains the loss of control you had in a relationship? Or how about when God confronts your sin through a brother or sister? It feels as though God's taking some things away. It's in those moments where it's helpful for us to, we can discern a little more easily, are we delighting in the things of God rather than God Himself? Let me read to you a couple passages. Psalm 63, 1-3. Again, write these passages down. Look at them this week. David says this, O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You, and my soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So you hear and see David delighting in God himself. Another passage from Habakkuk 3, 17-18 says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So delighting in God, what is it like? Pleasure in the Lord, enjoying Christ, what is it like? Well, first of all, pleasure in God is satisfaction ultimately in a person, not in things. Philippians 4.4 4 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 16, verse 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. And so as we begin to frame up, if you will, this question of how do we delight in God, we first see that it's in a person and not in things. It's not in a place. It's not in circumstances. It's in the Lord. It's in Christ. It's in the Trinity. It's in the Father. But then the question is, so how do we delight in God? And that's really the question that we're going to seek to answer over the next number of weeks is how do we delight in God? How do we delight in the person of God? How do we delight in the Lord? <clears throat> the book Habits of Grace by David Mathis will be profoundly impacting on our time over the next number of weeks and we'll be quoting from him a number of times. It's very helpful. As so we seek to answer this question, how do we delight in God? Job said this, the Eliphaz says to Job, if you lay gold, if you lay, really the implication, if you lay your gold, 
in the dust, then God, the Almighty, will be your gold. So the question is, how is it that we lay our gold in the dust? There's three things I want you to see today. I'll tell them to you now and then we'll work through them as we go. I want you to see God's grace. I want you to see our effort. And the third thing I want you to see is pleasure shared. God's grace, our effort, and pleasure shared. Ephesians 2, one of our primary texts for today, says this starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Uh, obviously there's so much in, this, in just these few verses uh, for us to talk about. That's why it took us 82 sermons to get through the book of Ephesians. Uh, So I'm not going to be able to hit everything that's in that passage. But for our purposes today, the first thing I want you to see is God's grace. I want to talk about God's grace for a few moments. That is very foundational if we're going to understand enjoying Jesus through habits of grace. First, what grace is, certainly at a very fundamental and basic level, it's the unmerited favor of God. It's, it's the blessing and work of God given to his people based on no merit of their own. They've not earned this. This means that we did nothing to earn our salvation and we can do nothing ultimately to keep our salvation. It says, by grace you have been saved. God is the one who has granted us salvation. Those whom He has saved, He has granted salvation by His grace. You and I didn't have enough righteousness. We didn't say a long enough prayer or the, all the right words enough to save us most fundamentally. But what most fundamentally has saved us is God's grace. Instead, quite the opposite is true of us. We actually deserved eternal condemnation. But God gave to His people the exact opposite of what they deserve. So not only did they just happen to not do things to not deserve salvation, but have actually done things to deserve the opposite. And God in His grace rescues them from that. As we begin to think about delighting in God, we need to understand the following. Let me give you a paraphrase here. The grace of God is gloriously beyond our skill and technique. Learning to delight in God is not about earning God's favor. It's not about twisting God's arm or controlling his blessing, but about readying ourselves for consistent saturation in the role of his tithes. There are whole churches and denominations built on the idea of I just say the right words so I can twist God to his arm to give me a blessing or I can I can thwart God's plans and get him to to give this to me over here whether it's a healing or or physical material blessing and prosperity and such and 
it's all certainly garbage and, and blasphemy at its core. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the grace of God is gloriously beyond any skill. So as we talk about habits of grace, these are not chances and opportunities for us to twist God's arm and get out of Him what we want. But instead are about readying ourselves for consistent saturation in His grace. So we talked about what is grace, but what is grace doing? What has grace done? What will grace be doing? Like at its fundamental root, what is grace about? What is God using His grace for? These theological terms, if you will, are, are very uh, uh, known, at least among most of us, but it's worth repeating as we set this foundation for understanding habits of grace the first is that this grace works in spite of our sin. That's very fundamental. We need to understand that grace works in spite of our sinfulness. The theological term for that is justification. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says this, even when we were dead in our trespasses, so even when we were in our sin, he made us alive together with Christ. Let me quote Mathis here. It says, because of grace unmeasured, boundless free now our once dead hearts beat and our once lifeless lungs breathe let me say that again because of grace unmeasured boundless and free now our once dead hearts beat and our once lifeless lungs breathe he goes on a perfect unimpeachable divinely approved humanly applied righteousness is ours in the union with jesus he's made us alive together with Christ. It's not our effort that uh, applies it, but He applies it to us humans. Romans 3.24 says this, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what is grace doing? What is God, what's God's goals and his, what is He accomplishing with grace? First of all, he's accomplishing justification. Second, grace works to eradicate our sin. So it works in spite of our sin. Grace also is working to eradicate our sin. We call that sanctification. Ephesians 2.6 says, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This grace has seated us in the heavenly places. A, a, an already, net, a already not yet reality. We are already placed in a place where only holiness and righteousness is acceptable. A place where unrighteousness has no home. Mathis said this, Grace is too wild to let us stay in love with unrighteousness. Grace is too free to leave us in slavery to sin. Too untamed to let our lists go unconquered. Grace's power is too uninhibited to not unleash us for the happiness of true holiness. And this is how we grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and live not under law but under grace. There's where the law fits into its appropriate place and when it does, it's a good thing. But grace, the grace of God is too powerful to at work to leave us where we're at. Grace is too strong to leave us passive, he says, too potent to let us wallow in the mire of our sins and weaknesses. 
Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So grace works in spite of our sin, and grace works to eradicate our sin. Next, grace secures our place in glory. The fancy term for that is glorification. Grace secures our place in glory. Back to the Ephesians passage, verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So listen, not only will Jesus be glorified in us, but we will be glorified in Jesus. We'll be lifted and elevated to a place of honor in Christ. For all of eternity, he says, he will pour out his riches upon his redeemed, upon his people. And so grace works in spite of our sin. It works to eradicate our sin. And grace secures us a place in glory where there will be no sin any longer. So as we think about habits of grace, again, as we're seeing this, this is God's unmerited favor. These are the goals of which God is working towards in us with his grace. Justification, sanctification, glorification. So as we think about if I'm going to enjoy Jesus through habits of grace, these things have to be taking place. These things are a part of God's work in grace and his people's lives. To think about experiencing God's grace as a follower of Jesus apart from justification, sanctification, and ultimately glorification is a bifurcation that cannot take place. That you cannot dichotomize those two. You can't separate them. They have to go together. It's not experience God's grace apart from these goals of God. They go together. And so grace is God's unearned blessing upon his people. It is God giving us something we don't deserve. And his grace is so powerful and so at work. Listen, you and I, look, look at me, I know you're taking notes, but look at me. You and I don't even come close to understanding the depth and power of God's grace. We've just begun to scratch the surface. Listen, the depth of his grace will take an eternity for us to experience. Mathis says this, grace's power is too uninhibited to not unleash us for the happiness of true holiness. This is why I would argue that if someone's not on a trajectory towards greater holiness, then we're likely not a Christian, likely not redeemed or a follower of Jesus. Grace just doesn't work that way. The presence of grace necessarily displaces sinfulness. It eradicates sin. And so now as we think about delighting in God, clearly none, none of this, and this is part of, my, part of the main point of my argument here, is that none of this idea of delighting in God is possible apart from God's 
grace. I want to read to you from Ephesians, or sorry, Philippians chapter 2. If you want to keep your finger in Ephesians, we go to Philippians 2. A very familiar passage for most of us. Therefore, my beloved, starting in verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So first we talked about his grace. Now I want to talk about our effort. Our effort. Now, now as, as we begin to talk about this, I, I have to it, say this. No one likes to talk about our effort, particularly in this church's theological circles. Our effort, it's almost like a dirty word or a dirty phrase. What do you mean? Like, it, it's, it's, it's God's grace. It's His grace, and we're saved by His grace. And you start talking about effort, and you get labeled as a legalist or as a, a dutiful Christian. I, I think part of what, I, there's, there's a goodness in some of that, because we're trying to fight hard against earning our own righteousness and that's a good thing, and we need to keep that and always fight against even the thought that we could begin to earn our own righteousness. That's why we've began the series the way we have. But on the other side, I think part of the reason why we don't like to talk about our own effort because our egos don't like to be told what to do. We'd rather just go, grace, grace, and what do you mean you're telling me I have to live this way or I have to do this action or, or whatever? But according to this passage, Philippians 2, it's both God's grace and our effort. It it is both God's work and our doing. It is both God's unmerited favor and our working out this salvation. To quote John Piper, this is such a helpful phrase. The essence of the Christian life is learning to fight for joy in a way that does not replace grace. Let me add a couple of words in there that will give a little bit more context for this word. The essence of the Christian life is learning to fight for joy in the Lord in a way that does not replace God's work in grace. Learning how to fight, into that quote, Learning how to fight to delight in God in such a way that doesn't replace the work of God. That doesn't replace grace. That doesn't leave grace behind. That doesn't forget about grace. That doesn't result in being humbled by God's grace. Right? If, if you begin to sense any measure of pride or patting myself on the back as I'm working out my salvation, then what's happening is I'm at least beginning, if not thoroughly dove into this world of I can do this apart from God's grace. But the essence of the Christian life is just working out our own salvation with fear and trembling without ever forgetting that it is God who is ultimately at work. And without Him being at work, ultimately we wouldn't even be trying. But we certainly wouldn't be going anywhere. 
And so as we talk about our effort, we cannot forget that. But nevertheless, we must talk about our effort. If we're too afraid to talk about our effort, then we're too afraid to talk about what the Scriptures clearly command of us. And that is, Paul says here to the Philippians and to us, that we are to work out our own salvation. We are to work it out. Now understand that Paul views salvation in kind of a three-stage process, this justification, sanctification, glorification, right? You were saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. Like there's this glorification where it's finished. So in a sense, justification, Paul, and I'm giving you lots of theology. I'm not going to reference lots of scriptures here for it, but don't have time. Justification, right, is a once and for all, it's finished. When we are justified, it is done. It's a done act, recovered in the blood of sin, just as if we'd never sinned. That's complete. That part of salvation's done. Now Paul says, now we're to work out this salvation. I'm going to explain what I think he means by that. And that's this life that we're in right now. Justification has happened. Sanctification is happening. Glorification will happen. We've talked about this before as a church, this decades-old thinking of salvation is only a moment in time has in many ways ruined Christianity in this country. That's where we get this easy believism stuff. That's where we get this cheap grace stuff. That's where we get lazy Christians, where we get this idea of someone can be a carnal Christian that stuff's just crazy. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul's talking about this. Someone who has been justified will work out their salvation because that's what happens when God is at work in someone's life. And so Paul is calling us to work towards this end of salvation that we would work out our salvation. So here's what I believe Paul is saying. Now that you have been justified, work out the implications of that salvation. Meaning, Take that salvation and work that into every little corner, nook, and cranny of your life, your heart, your mind, right? What's Jesus? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. What is that? That's working out your salvation. As you begin to love the Lord your God in all of those places, he's saying, now that you've been saved justification, work out the implications of that. And here's the reality. This is going to take work. That's why Paul uses the word work. It's going to take effort. You're going to have to exert force. Paul will tell Timothy, train yourself for godliness. As we looked at last week, we talked about the idea of the athlete, right? particularly in reference to the ego. So the question is, what does this effort look like? If we're, we'll, just, we'll stick with Paul for the moment. What does this effort look like? Paul uses the athlete metaphor a lot. To pull a little bit of what we talked about last week as we were wrapping up the book of Acts. The athlete, what does the athlete do? The athlete denies the natural impulses of the flesh. The athlete denies what the flesh naturally wants, right? The, the flesh naturally wants rest. It wants to engorge. It wants to store up fat. It, wants to, it doesn't want to work hard. The flesh doesn't want to feel pain. It wants to be at ease. And so what does the athlete do? He beats his flesh. He, he works against the natural flow of his flesh, 
That's the point of the metaphor. What Paul is talking about in Timothy, where he says that I have finished the fight. I have, uh, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What is this fight, right? It's this fight like the athlete, except it's not this fight necessarily against the flesh, uh, the, the body in an athletic sense of I need to run or, or be quicker or lift more, but in the sense that my ego is always at work against the things of God. The natural bend of our ego is inward, right? That is, that is what you're struggling against every day. The ego says, don't lay the gold you have down. Pick it back up. You need it. You earned it. You gotta have it. As I quoted Martin Luther last week, he says this, due to our original sin, our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it fails to realize that in this wicked, twisted, and crooked way, it seeks all things, including God, for itself. Our ego is so desperately needs the grace of God. And it needs the grace of God to work in our effort. So we come to this of our ultimate question for today. What does this effort look like? What does it look like to actually fight this battle? What does it look like to actually work against the flesh? As I just called it a few moments ago, the ego is, as Luther deals with. What does our effort look like? I want to give you this thought before you today. Put yourself in the path of God's grace. Put yourself in the path of God's grace. Now, again, I, I know we got start to get uncomfortable, right? Because now it's my doing, it's my working. I, I know, I know, it makes me uncomfortable myself. We would understand clearly that even the desire to want to put myself in the paths of God's grace is ultimately a work of God's grace in my life. Right? But nevertheless, Paul is not saying work out your salvation. He's not saying put yourself in the paths of God's grace if he doesn't really mean to actually go do it. He means to actually go do it. This is not... Just some fluffy thought, uh, something for you to hope that God moves you from here to there to be put in His grace. No, He means you and I work it out. To put yourself in the path of God's grace, our effort. When I say our effort, what I mean by that is place ourselves along the paths where God has promised to bless. Now listen, God, God can bestow grace in many different ways. You see that through the scriptures. He does it in spite of our sins. Certainly our salvation is rooted and begins, the very foundation of it is when he, in eternity past, chooses to save a people. And then he saves them knowing their sin, saves them in spite of their sin. So that person that God saves 
is not putting themselves in the paths of God's grace. And so our own salvation begins when we don't want anything to do with God's grace. And he rescues us and changes our heart where we begin to desire and love him and see the glory of the gospel and the rescue work of Christ. But nevertheless, Paul says to work it out. So sure, God can bestow grace in many different ways. But God has promised to give His grace and to bless His people in certain paths, in certain streams. So so listen, He can do it in other ways, and He does do it in other ways. But God has promised to give His grace in certain paths, consistently for his people. We quote Mathis, God has revealed certain channels through which he regularly pours out his favor and we are foolish not to take his word on them and build habits of spiritual life around them. A familiar quote from C.S. Lewis It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased." instead of placing ourselves in the streams where God has promised to grant blessing and favor, we would rather play in the streams of getting what I want from this relationship. We'd rather play in the stream of having a romantic partner. We'd rather play in the stream of playing that sports game or having successful children. Or we'd rather play in the stream of being thanked for our servitude or saving a penny on that purchase or make that extra dollar or avoid that little bit of hard work. We'd rather play in the streams of what we believe will be blessing if we do those things. Now, any necessarily want, not, none of those are necessarily wrong in and of themselves. But to think that these are the main channels of which God has chosen to grant His grace and His blessing and His favor is just foolish. Do you understand that when we do that, when we choose things like this and other things, that we are putting ourselves more in the streams of mud? When we could have a holiday at the beach when you could have infinite joy and delight, if you're living in the stream of God's grace. So I want to talk about, very quickly, and this is what we're going to expound on over the next number of weeks, is three paths, if you will, three primary places in which God has promised. you hear me? He's promise to bestow his grace and blessing these think of them literally as rivers where his grace abounds his favor is present his blessing flows acts 2:42 hopefully this is very fresh as we read this passage you think about what the results were of this verse 
Right, we just spent, what, 32 weeks in the book of Acts. And listen to this verse. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And what happens in the book of Acts? We just finished it up last week. Right? The church explodes. The world, the Roman Empire is turned upside down. People are dying like Stephen and Paul are dying at the hands but singing and worshiping God. Stephen saying, forgive them. God, forgive them. Those who are killing me right now. You see a murderer like Paul get rescued and become one of the greatest evangelists of the gospel writing much of the New Testament. Now before we talk about what these three things are, look at the result. It says, all came upon them. All came upon them. They were doing these things They were doing these things and all came upon them. The result was all came upon them. Listen, you will delight in whatever has your all. You delight in what has your all. That's why when you look out, you go, what am I delighting in? It's that which has my all. You cannot delight in someone unless they are stunning to your eyes and stunning to your heart. Unless they have captivated your attention. And these early believers placed themselves along the pathway of God's grace. And as they were, they were overtaken by this stream of God's grace so much that their awe was captured. And so whether they devote themselves to the word, prayer, fellowship, you say, well, it was breaking of bread. I was eating, communion, those kind of, I think that fits in here as well. But the word, prayer, and fellowship. You're going to hear us talk about it largely in these three terms. The three primary streams of God's grace. His voice, His ear, and His body. His voice his ear, and his body. Back to the Philippians 2 passage. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says, for it is God who works in you. So it is God who works And I think what we see from the Scripture is that this is the primary means of grace in which God works out our salvation through His voice, meaning us hearing and listening to His voice, the Word, right? Us having His ear, prayer. You understand, like when I say that, this is what I mean. The creator of the universe has given us his attention. What a stream of his grace. And his body, the church, 
the fellowship of the saints, the communion of the saints. Again, God can work His grace in many different ways. His streams are not limited to these three, but these three God has promised to bless His people through. And we have to ask this question, kind of a little bit of a caveat here. How do I actually do this? How do I actually work these three out? How do I actually get into this? Where does the effort and the strength to actually do this Listen, the way to receive the gift of God's empowering our actions is to do the actions. Let me quote Mathis. If he gives the gift of effort, we receive that gift of effort by expending the effort. When he gives the grace of growing in holiness, we don't, re- we don't receive that gift apart from becoming more holy. When he gives us the desire to get more of him in the scriptures or in prayer or among his people, we don't receive that gift without experiencing the desire and actually living out the pursuits that flow from that grace. We get the gift as we expend the effort. Listen, where in Philippians do you see God giving the gift to work out salvation apart from the effort? It's not. It's not this. Oh, fantastic. I have the grace, the gift of God to go read my Bible now finally. So let me go do it. Go read your Bible. The grace of God will come as we do it. Or, 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 oh, fantastic, God has given me the grace to go and pray. The power to go and pray. Let me do so. No, go pray. His power will be upon you. Or, or, oh, fantastic, I think I have the grace to go live in community with other people finally. So let me go talk to that person over there that I've never talked to. No, His grace to do it comes as we work it out. And so we here we have this idea of lay yourself on the pathway of grace. You know, where, where, do you, where, where are you getting some of that idea of laying ourselves on the pathway? What do you think is happening in Luke 19, 1 through 10 with Zacchaeus? You see this through the Gospels all the time. Listen, Zacchaeus comes. He couldn't force Jesus' hand. He couldn't make grace flow automatically. But he could put himself by faith along the path where grace was about to walk. He could put himself there. Now again, it's God's grace at work in Zacchaeus to, to bring him to even want to do that, to even have the faith to believe that grace would be there in the presence where Jesus was at. That's certainly the work of God, but nevertheless, it is the effort of Zacchaeus as an outworking of the grace of God where Zacchaeus goes, I believe grace awaits if I could just see. Jonathan Edwards said this, endeavor to promote spiritual appetites by laying yourself in the way of allurement. We cannot force Jesus' hand, but we can put ourselves along the paths of grace where we can be expectant of 
his blessing. So you understand that God's grace is wild. It's amazing. It's overwhelming. But that it travels along certain channels most of the time. What do you think the role of the prophets were in the Old Testament? Was to deliver God's streams of grace as they spoke on His behalf. His voice, His ear, His body. And we're incredibly foolish when we choose to do other things, to place ourselves in the streams of other things, rather than placing ourselves in the streams of His grace. So let me ask you some questions. What do you do instead of listening to his voice through reading the scriptures? Through making sure you listen well on Sunday mornings? Or attending a Bible class? What do you do instead of praying when you know you have his ear? What do you do instead of giving yourself to open, genuine, honest, and selfless community? And I quote, God often showers His people with unexpected favor, but typically the grace that sends our roots deepest truly grows us up in Christ, prepares our soul for a new day, produces lasting spiritual maturity, and increases the current of our joy streams are the ordinary and unspectacular paths of fellowship, prayer, and Bible intake given practical expression in countless forms and habits. So he's saying that these paths of fellowship, prayer, and Bible they can look different ways. They have different expressions. For example, Bible intake. For some, that looks like studying 15 hours a week. For others, it looks like 30 minutes a day and then meditating on the Scriptures throughout the day. But nevertheless, God's primary means, His primary streams or channels of His grace and blessing come through fellowship, prayer, and Bible intake. Let's go back to that Philippians 2 passage. He says this in verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. Don't miss that phrase. For His good pleasure. Lastly, we need to see pleasure shared. Pleasure shared. We reference the Ephesians 4 verse as well. Listen, the great end of the means is knowing and enjoying Him. Knowing and enjoying Him. The great end in this whole series is knowing and enjoying Jesus. In chapter 4, verse 7 of Ephesians, it says this, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us, where? In Christ Jesus. Here's what Paul is saying. The final and greatest experience of mankind, the goal to which we were created and the end to which we were saved is to be an honorable display of God as He makes us the objects of His grace and kindness. Those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Because God's incredible work of the gospel, here's why. His work of the gospel is on display every time he shares an ounce of his grace with his children who were rescued from death through Jesus. Every ounce of his grace. That's why he does it. That's why we find such pleasure. You get to share in this good pleasure. The final joy in any truly Christian discipline or practice or rhythm of life, and the word of Paul is this, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Philippians 3, verse 8. And I quote, When all is said and done, our hope is not to be a skilled Bible reader, a practice prayer-er, and a faithful churchman, but to be the one who, quote, understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Knowing and enjoying Jesus is the final end of hearing his voice, having his ear, and belonging to his body. But listen to this. Listen, listen. But not only is knowing and enjoying him ours to be had, but it is God's pleasure too. God finds pleasure. Hear me. Hear me. God finds pleasure in working your salvation out in the streams of his grace. Like he finds pleasure. Us rotten, wretched, sinful, wandering people. He finds pleasure. And I quote, God is pleased, listen, to supply ongoing life and energy and health and strength to our souls. He finds pleasure. The means of grace fill our tank for the pursuit of joy, for the good of others, and ultimately for the glory of God. What God does in bringing this about brings Him great pleasure. He isn't some stuffy-nosed jerk who wants to figure this thing out just so that He can get things the way he wants. Instead, he is delighted to bring this about in the lives of his children. He has pleasure in doing this. He enjoys it. He is satisfied. He delights in doing that. That's what Paul means. For his great pleasure. And the results bring him pleasure. He loves to bless the effort of his children. He loves for his children to hear his voice, to discern his thoughts, to understand his character, to know his ways. He loves to listen to his children. We have his ear, and he gladly gives it to us. He has pleasure in giving it to us, and he gladly listens and bestows and answers ultimately in ways that are best for us. And he loves to bless his children through his body. Do you understand that this collection of believers called Renovation Church has the promise of God to bless his people if we will lay ourselves in the streams of his grace, including the body and the community of the saints? 
Listen, Jesus died. He rose again. And we can't come to God apart from Jesus. Because in our sin, we have no place among the holy. And so he had to save us from our sin. Someone to bear our guilt, our condemnation, the price that was due for our sin, and to wash us clean so that we could walk in the streams of his grace. So Jesus comes, dies for us, bought us with a price, but he didn't reconcile us to a body of beliefs. As important as they are, he reconciled us to a person. He reconciled us to a person. He paid the way for us to enter God's streams of grace. Back to Ephesians chapter 2, 4 through 7. But God, listen to these words maybe in a fresh way. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And listen, the streams of his grace are not simply waiting for someday, although we have much to look forward to. The streams of God's grace for his people are flowing today. May we, by his grace, place ourselves in the streams of his grace. Let's pray. Father, please forgive us. Forgive us for wandering into other streams where we think there is blessing to be had, there is favor to be had. Father, forgive us for justifying those things. Instead of understanding that through these very unspectacular ways, at least to our eyes, not spectacular, Father, may may you give us eyes to see that these are the ways that you have chosen primarily to bless your people. Not limited to, but certainly we see you working through these ways consistently throughout the scriptures. And so, Father, as we begin to answer this question, how, how do we delight in you? How do we enjoy you? Well, may we, may we see that there is delight as we swim in the streams of your grace. For that as we swim in the stream of grace through your scriptures, as we hear your voice, that we would worship you. That we would see you more clearly for who you are. That, Father, as we hear your voice, that we would understand and see more clearly 
your incredible attributes that are so good for us. And Father, as we, as we understand that we have your ear, that it's not just so that we can get things, but that we have a Father in heaven who has said to his children, I'm listening. I love you. You're mine. Come tell me. And Father, as we place ourselves in the stream, a very practical stream as well, the communion of the saints, Father, that we fellowship with other believers, we would understand that there is great grace that awaits us as we expel the effort there and in these places. Father, thank you for the grace of rescuing us even when we wanted nothing to do with you. May we be reminded of that every day. I thank you for your work of grace in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?